are going to be in the book of Philippians again. If you want to turn there. We're going to be in the, in the third chapter. We'll start in verse 12 today. I'll give a review. It's been, it seems like it's been a long time um, since I last preached. But the last time we heard a lot about what true circumcision was. We saw that the inheritance is not based on your flesh, but it's, based, it's not based on your heritage. It's not based on your genealogy. It's not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on keeping the law, but it's based on being in the true circumcision, which is only through faith in Christ. The inheritance comes through Christ alone. It was a great song, by the way, the five solas. First time I've heard that. It was fantastic. Christ alone. The circumcision is made without hands. It's not of flesh and blood. It's done by the Holy Spirit performed on the heart of man. And there were four main parts that Paul, in the, in the last section, uh, the, the four main points that Paul made in, in a, about the relationship with Christ. The first was to obtain the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. This was what Paul's goal was. This is what our goal should be. This is the exhortation of Paul to us. To obtain the excellency of the knowledge of Christ, to gain Christ, to be found in Christ, and to know Christ. There's kind of a common theme here. It's Christ. And then in verse 11 it says, to attain the resurrection of the dead. To obtain the resurrection from the dead, in which shows us there will, will be a resurrection. The dead in Christ will rise. We see that in 1 Thessalonians. As the body of Jesus literally came out of the ground, so will those that are found in him. We all are seeking a resurrection. Death has no long-term power anymore. It is temporary for the Christian. The curse has no long-term power anymore. Paul was talking this morning in equipping hour about the curse and the thorns. I can't believe he didn't mention Sambers. Have y'all noticed? It hasn't rained in like four years. And the Sambers still grow. I, this is the curse. The fact that we're in a drought is part of the curse. It's part of this world that we're living in because of sin. But that doesn't have any long-term power anymore. That is all temporary. We are coming close to a time when the sandburrs will no longer grow. And I'm looking forward to it. The sickness will no longer be here. A lot of people out sick today, and we won't have to worry about that any longer. The victory is secure. And in that, those that are in Christ can and should rejoice. And that brings us to where we are today. Let me pray. Father, I thank you, God, for that secure victory that you won for us, that you secured for us, that you have called us into you, that you have called us into Christ. I pray, Lord, that this message would magnify you, that this message would magnify Christ, that it would magnify his work, his victory. 
and that we would have a desire, that this message would give us a desire, that it would give me a desire to pursue hard after that. God, that you would teach us to love you better, that you would teach us to trust you better. And in turn, it would teach us to love one another better and follow you hard. In Jesus' name, amen. So the text today will be from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. And I titled it, this is maybe the first time I actually did this ahead of time. You know, we post these online and Randy always sends me a text about Monday or so or Tuesday. Sermon title, question mark. And I start trying to think. He's really good at coming up with them. Usually he comes up with one before I can and I'm like, man, that's great. So he usually does it. But this one I thought of ahead of time. And I titled it, The Goal of Christ. So, verse 12. Now that I have already attained or am already, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Not that I've already attained. We see humility here in the Apostle Paul. I think we see humility when we read Paul's writing. I think we see humility in Paul that is lacking in many, many preachers today. And I think that we need to learn from that. We need to take note of that. We need to mimic that humility. We need to strive for that. He says, I haven't already attained it. I'm not already perfected. He's saying, I'm not there yet. I have not attained the resurrection. I have not been perfected, but I press on towards it. And this verse is interesting because it is in direct contrast to those who believe in sinless perfectionism. And you, there may not be anybody in here that's ever even heard of that which would be okay, but there's more people out there than you think that believe in sinless perfectionism. What is that? It's a popular teaching. You'll hear it. It's very, very much in the word of faith movement. And I learned this in studying this this week. I did not know this, but this is actually something that the Church of the Nazarene believes in, is sinless perfectionism. They believe that once you have the, and there's different terminology for this, In the word of faith circles, they would call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And they identify that by the speaking in tongues. Um, The Church of the Nazarene calls it, some of them will call it baptism of the Holy Spirit. Some of them call it um, a second work of grace. So they have the first work of grace, which you're saved, and then they have a second work of grace. And then at that point, they believe that they are now sinless and they do not commit sin. Any longer. That's a, man, that's an interesting position. I guess they never read this where Paul hasn't arrived yet. I guess this was before Paul had that second work of grace. Even though he's an apostle and writing scripture, to claim that you are claiming to be more spiritual than Paul. I don't think anybody would actually say that, but that's what they're saying. The I remember Ronnie preaching at the prison one time, and he said, Is anybody in here perfect? Well, nobody raised their hands. He says, Is anybody in here sinless? Several of them raised their hand. 
And he goes, you know you're in prison, right? Well, I haven't sinned in like 13 years, you know, or 10 years or 5 years or whatever it is. I read a story that I thought was fantastic, and it was actually a preacher at a Nazarene church. And he asked that question, and this lady said, yeah, I haven't sinned in 13 years. And he said, wow, that must, you must be really proud that you haven't sinned in 13 years. And she said, yeah, I'm really proud of it. <laughs> Pride is mentioned as an abomination unto the Lord. Of course we still sin. The Apostle Paul still struggled with that. He said, I am chief of sinners, not I was chief of sinners. We all struggle with that. And Paul was no different. But don't fall into the other ditch and think somehow this removes our assurance. It doesn't. This does not remove our assurance. This verse doesn't actually say that we can't have eternal security. The point of this verse, the point of what Paul is saying here is, what does it look like when you do have eternal security? Spurgeon said this. He said, those who have trusted themselves in the hands of the Lord Jesus are saved, and they may enjoy holy confidence upon the matter, for they have a divine warrant for doing so. The warrant is Romans 1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Once you have been saved, once you are truly in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You are saved for the, forever. It's, it's a salvation. It's secure. However, the work of the Holy Spirit is still going on inside us. That is a process. That is called sanctification. This was a big thing for me when I realized the, the difference between salvation and sanctification. Because I was raised in a way, I, I grew up in a way thinking that if what I, everything I did was to be saved. When I did something, it was to earn favor with God. So why do you do all these good things? Well, it's so I can earn heaven. I can make heaven my home. But what I realized later through studies, through teaching, through discipleship, was there's another process. So, for example, baptism. Baptism is not for salvation. And so when I would hear that, the way that I understood baptism, when I would hear that, I thought, well, you don't even think, if somebody said baptism isn't necessary for salvation, all I heard was baptism isn't necessary. So you don't even think baptism's important. No. That's not what I'm saying at all. Baptism is extremely important. For one, it's commanded by the Lord Jesus. And for two, it's actually necessary for our growth in the Christian life. It's necessary 100% for sanctification. So there's a difference there. And a lot of times people don't find that difference. And that's important to understand that sanctification is a process that will be going on until we... Either God calls us home or until we die. And then it will be complete. He will redeem us. But So it's important to understand those things, a lot of the things that we do are necessary for our sanctification, for our growth in Christ. And that's what Paul is talking about here. So we have assurance, but the Holy Spirit is still working on us. We are being conformed to the image of Christ. And I don't know about you. 
But it takes a lot of work for me. The lump of clay was rough when God got started. Right? It wasn't like it was already there and he just needed to polish it up and knock off the rough images. No, he was starting with a lump of clay. Dry, hard clay, right? And he is working constantly and that's what he's doing for each one of us who are believers. He is conforming us to the image of Christ. It wasn't complete in Paul. And it's not complete in us. And that's why he says, we, he says, but I press on. That's the key here, the pressing on. The word is dioko. It means to pursue with vigor. Pursue with vigor. It's actually like a terminology you would see in hunting or in a predator pursuing its prey. You ever watch those shows where the, the cheetah is chasing down the antelope and, or, or some sort of animal is pursuing uh, prey? They don't do it like halfway or it's not going to work. It's relentless. Those animals are dependent upon it. If they don't pursue with everything they have, they're going to starve to death. And that's how we should be pursuing Christ. It's not halfway. It's not timidly. It's with vigor. If you're a competitor, you understand this. Athletes understand this. Any type of competition you enter into, you understand this. You can't go into it halfway and expect to win. Right? And, we're going to, and you see Paul use these, these analogies a lot. The, he'll use the analogy of a runner. Or he'll use the analogy of a wrestler or, or some sort of competitor. Why? Because they understand. When you're in competition, you understand. You have to do it with everything you have. In order to be successful. And that's what he's saying. We have to, do we not owe it to Christ to give him our full pursuit? To give him our, our all, our vigor, pursuit. And the key is what we are laying hold of. What are we pursuing? And, and if you look there at the end of the verse... That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. In other words, he has already laid hold of us and we should be pursuing hard after him because of that. Because he's chosen us. Because he set his affection on you and he loves you. Should we not return the favor to the king of glory? We don't understand authority in this country. We just don't. If we understood authority better, I think we would get these analogies better. He's the king. And people in kingdoms, and you look through history, it didn't matter if it was a good king or a bad king, you submitted to the king. And if the king gave you attention, you paid attention. If the king spoke, you listened. Why? Because they had true authority. And if it was a good king, even more so. Well, here we have the king of the world, the king of the universe, the king of all kings, who has laid his affection on you and says, I love you, will you follow after me? And we want to do it timidly. We want to dip our toe in the water. No, that's not what he's called us to do. And it's an honor and it's a privilege to even have the opportunity to follow this king.
And we should be pursuing him with the same vigor that he pursued us. Was he relentless in his pursuit of us? I'll just tell you, if he wasn't, you wouldn't be here. There was nothing going to stop him from reaching in and saving you. If you're a believer in Christ, he broke down all the walls. He removed the stone from your heart. He took the scales off of your eyes so that you could see. He loved you. And we should be pursuing him with that same kind of vigor. And the amazing thing is we can do that not on our power, but on His. Because He's also given us the Holy Spirit who guides us and gives us power and directs us to be able to do that. Look at verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I can definitely relate to Paul in this. I'm not perfect. And I'm sure my faults are way more than Paul's. I have no problem admitting that. I've had many failures. Paul had had many failures. But what's he saying here? In this verse he's saying, I'm not going to dwell on those. I'm not going to let those define me. Do you hang on your past sins? Do you let them hold you back from serving God and God's people? I know it happens. It's happened to me. I've talked to people and that they have these, these problems. Well, I'm not perfect. I, I can't serve. That's actually an extremely arrogant, prideful saying. As if your brand of sin is somehow worse than everybody else's. Like somehow you're worse than everybody else. No. God has provided mercy for all of us. And you looking back on those past sins are not doing anybody any good. If that's your attitude, listen. Just listen. I'm going to be real plain. You're a sinner. We get it. You fail every day. Welcome to the club. Okay? We all fail. We fail every day. What God is saying here is quit looking back on those failures and reach forward to what is ahead. If you are waiting to be perfect before you can serve, you will never serve. Look at 1 John. First John 1.8 says very clearly... And this is, this is the Apostle John, right? The Apostle whom Jesus loved. He says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Of course you have sin. All of us do. Everybody who has ever served God, other than Christ, who is God, everyone else, everyone who's ever been saved has had sin. And they've had to look past that sin. They've had to move past that sin in order to serve God. You can't wait until you're sinless. You can't wait until you're good enough to serve God. You're not. And you're not going to be. But the blood that He has covered you with is good enough. And He's given gifts to you. He's given spiritual gifts to you. And by you not using them, you're failing. 
You're failing to pursue him with the vigor that Paul talks about here. Look at verse 9 in John. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't be dwelling on those past sins. It's time to move forward. It's time to look forward. Look to Christ. Look at verse 14. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press toward the goal for the prize. Here we're seeing some of that competition language again. You know, the fastest way to, to, to run a race, the fastest way to the finish line is a straight line. Do you know that? I remember learning how to run. I was not fast. It's another one of those things that my family was fast. I was not. My family was musical. I was not. I was like that guy on the jerk. Couldn't keep rhythm. Same way with running. My dad's picture was in the gym at Chandler. It may still be there. I don't know. His picture's in the gym at Chandler because he holds the record for the, I think it was a 400-meter relay. And I was not. I was a disappointment in the running thing. But I do remember trying to be better because I wanted to be fast like my dad was, you know. And he, he would teach me. And I actually heard him preach this. When, the, when you learn how to run, you don't want your feet really wide like this when you're running a sprint, running a race. The closer you can get them, the faster you'll be. And when you watch, when you watch the Olympics or you, you watch really good runners, and they've got a lane this wide, and they use about half of it right out of the middle. They do not zigzag. You go to watch a junior high track meet, and you'll see a kid run 150 meters in a 100-meter race because he's doing this. The fastest race, the fastest way you can run that race is absolutely straight. Right? The fastest way to get, that's why planes are so much faster. They, some planes don't even go that much faster than cars do, prop planes and things like that. But they can get there so much faster because they go in a straight line. They don't have to take the turns and the curves and all of that. We're looking for that prize. And the other thing about running, I, I was just, I guess I was just having a lot of childhood moments as I was preparing this. Because I thought about when I was in Little League baseball. Anybody play Little League baseball or softball in here? A lot of people can probably relate, relate to this one then. I remember getting a really good hit one time, and I was watching it. And what were they yelling at me? Quit watching a ball and run. You can run a lot faster when you're looking forward at the goal and not looking back. When you're when somebody's chasing you, looking back doesn't help them, but doesn't make you outrun them faster. You run faster when you're only looking forward. It's in, it's extremely important that we understand this in Christianity. Take look over in Luke chapter six or chapter nine. This gets into a little more of my area. It doesn't take athletic ability. Luke chapter 9, verse 62. 
But Jesus said to him, No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Farmers take extreme pride in how straight their rows are. It's actually how GPS tractors were invented. They wanted straighter rows, so they invented GPS tractors so they could make perfectly straight rows. But it's been a thing about plowing straight rows since agriculture began, since the first field was broken. I'm guessing Adam wanted straight rows in the garden. Why? Well, there's a lot of reasons why straight rows are better. One is that when when you're tilling the ground in between, you will chop down less plants on accident because everything's straight. If you've got a curvy row, then you've got to try to follow that curve. Anybody that's ever raised a garden knows this. You try to run a tiller between two curvy rows, and if this row isn't perfectly parallel to this row, you've got a problem, right? Same way when it comes to harvest. It's much easier to harvest crops that are planted in straight rows. So it's a big deal, plain and straight rows. And that's what Jesus is, that's what, he's talking to farmers. He's talking to people that understand this. He says, if you put your hand to the plow and turn back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. What happens if you got your hand on the plow, the horse is pulling, and you're starting to look back all the time? You're doing this. Do you know the easiest way to plow a straight row? It's not to look right here. It's definitely not to look back. It's to find, when you turn around and you're going this way on a field, it's to find a point on the other side of the field and focus on that point and go straight to it. You will make a straight row. It's to fix your eyes on the goal. You'll make a straight row. You'll plow a straight line. And straight is the gate. Narrow is the way that leads to life. You can't find it if you're constantly looking back. And this is, the, this is the, what Paul is saying here is, this is what we so desperately need to learn as Christians. Let go of those past sins. Let them go. They're forgiven. Are you in Christ? Yes. Have you confessed them? Yes. Then let them go. And if you're holding them in and you haven't confessed them to Christ, then confess them. He knows about them already. Say it out loud and get rid of them. And look to look forward to the cross. Look forward to Christ. Keep your eye on the goal. And that goal is Christ. Now back over to Philippians in verse 15. He says, Therefore... Let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. That you would pursue Christ, holiness, and leave behind sins. That's what maturity looks like. It's letting go of your past sins. And sometimes that means letting go of others' past sins as well. Forgiveness is a mature Christian. And look, I'm not going to stand here and act like I've got this all figured out. I don't. I don't. Do I struggle with these things? I do. 
Do I struggle with dwelling on past sins? Yes. And that's why this message is to me just as much as it is to you. But I'm telling you here today, and my prayer is today, that God's Word would penetrate our hearts, convict us, and allow us to move on. That's what we need. We need God's Word. We need the Holy Spirit to do this work. And I pray that it comes today. And that would show maturity. That would demonstrate Christian maturity in us. Verse 16. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. That same mind. That mind is Christ. It's talking about Christians, of course. The us here is only to believers. Matthew Henry said this. He said, Christians who differ in smaller matters should yet bear with one another because they are agreed in the main matter. I need to learn this better. And probably we all do. We need to remember we're on the same team. We're all in Christ. And some of these smaller matters, it's great to discuss them. And we have great discussion in here with among our people. And that is fantastic. But we should never... We should bear with one another on those things. Why? Because we agree in the main matter. In the small matters of difference, we must consider the possibility that we could be wrong. in our thoughts in our ideas in our work and everything that we do we still have pride but we have to be able to admit that we could possibly be wrong or that we might lack understanding or that we hadn't even considered all the facets that are involved with this and we should pray that God would reveal these in all of us And that we can learn, and iron sharpens iron, but that we would enter into it with the right attitude. So we want to have the same mind. In verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. And this is very important as we we look at this verse. He says to note those who walk this way. This way that he's talking about, this way of maturity, this way of pursuing hard after Christ with vigor, pressing on towards the calling, pressing on towards the resurrection. And he says, you have us for a pattern. He's talking about himself. He's talking about other apostles. He's talking about other leaders of the church. And there's a key here to this that we have to understand. In order to note those who walk this way, You have to know 
their walk. The only way you can know somebody's walk is to actually get to know them, right? You have to know them personally. And this this raises several questions that I have about um, our current church culture because I think it's difficult or some way sometimes impossible to do this with certain church models. That's a problem with the mega church. Right? You walk into a church of 10,000 people, it's difficult to know that pastor. Or more, I don't know how big a mega church is. It's also a problem with the model of church that has a pastor on a video screen, and actually I think this one would be even more so, um, instead of standing in front of you. He doesn't know you, you don't know him. He can say, anybody can stand up and make a polished message and sound good, but what's he living like on Monday? What's he living like on Tuesday? Is, are, is he somebody that you can note, that's how I want to follow? You notice that Paul said nothing about what they're saying here. It's all about their life. It's all about pressing on with vigor in Christ. It's all about pressing on towards that resurrection. And that's who we are to follow, are the people that are pursuing that. Well, how can you know if that guy on the video screen is pursuing that Monday through Saturday? The reality is we don't know. We don't know. Now, does that mean that you can't learn from people? No, that's not what I'm saying. You can learn. You can read books. You can watch videos. You can listen to podcasts, and you can learn. But that's not the person that you want to emulate because you don't know what they're really like. It's that celebrity status. It's also a problem with doing church online. Because if you just watch your church every day online, every Sunday online, you're not getting to know the people in that church. You're not finding the people who you want to follow. And they're here. There's people here that you should be looking to in different areas of your life. And the Bible tells us here to note those who walk this way. And you have to get to know the people in order to do that. Verse 18 says, For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, Whose end is destruction, whose God is is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things. So two reasons to note these men. On the positive side, we're going to note somebody to look to for a pattern. How can I live in this current crazy world and still press on towards Christ? We can look to the apostles. We can look, obviously you look to Christ, but he's saying there's more to the Christian life than that. There is a Christian community which God has ordained and given us that we are to utilize for our sanctification. We're to utilize this to continue to grow and to learn how to live in this life. You want to learn how to run a business as a Christian. There's business owners who have been doing it for years. 
You know, how does Randy Tyler run his business? If you want to learn how to teach school, how does Paul do it? What does he do? How does he proclaim the gospel to his students and get away with it? Well, we're blessed at Stratford that you don't have to worry about it too much. But in other places, he's been other places, and he's had to be more subtle. Look to somebody. Find somebody in your business. Find somebody in your craft, in your walk of life, that has gone before you as a Christian. And we're to look to them for advice and to watch their life and to learn how to live. And then you have the negative. And those are many who claim the name of Christ that are actually the enemies of the cross. That's what Paul said here. And he says it weepingly. And the, the reality is their walk in life is a much surer evidence than their profession. There are many, many, many who profess Christ. And you don't have to watch very long to find out what it really is. If their profession is true. And I'm not talking about sinless perfectionism. I think I covered that. Obviously, that doesn't mean, well, that guy sinned one time, so he's not. No. But their walk, their day-to-day consistency, is it Christian or is it not? Their walk is a much sure evidence. Has, it, has anyone here ever known a heretic? I've known a few heretics. I've never known one that introduced to me as, hey, I'm a heretic. They don't proclaim that. They usually don't even know it. Nobody's ever introduced to me, hey, I'm a legalist. I got to work. There's a few that have come close on this one, but I've, most of them, I got to work and earn my entire thing. It's only by law. There is no grace. No, it's usually more subtle than that. Nobody says, I'm a sluggard. Hey, how you doing? My name's Justin. I'm extremely lazy. It's amazing. I've talked to, I know, I know a few lazy people in my life. I have some students that I would definitely put in that category. And it does not matter how lazy they are. If you ask them, they think they're a hard worker. How are you going to know if they're lazy? You watch them. That's amazing. Everybody else is over here working and you're over here doing nothing. But you say you're a hard worker. And that's how we know the true character of people is to know them and to see how they live their life. And to see how fast they are to repent. Because a Christian Christian is going to make mistakes. We know that. But they are also going to confess their sins and they're going to repent and they're going to turn around from that. And he says it weeping and I think it's likely because these are men that Paul knew. I think it's probably possible that these are men, some of them, that Paul discipled. And if you're in this Christian walk for very long, you're going to experience this. And it, it does cause much heartache. And it caused weeping. When there's somebody you once knew to be what, what looked like, what appeared to be strong and courageous in the faith, start falling away. 
It is a sad event. But we can take encouragement in this. First of all, none of that is on us. I mean, our discipleship is important. But the Apostle Paul, I'm sure nobody could disciple as good as the Apostle Paul, and he experienced it. And so he was dealing with all things. I mean, you think about even in men in Galatia where he said they started out so well, but their truth of their hearts revealed as legalists later. They wanted to base their salvation on the law. But the end of those people is destruction. Even though they confess Jesus, most of the time they have the wrong Jesus. They have the wrong doctrine and do not love the truth. And that is revealed in their life. It is revealed in their actions. And so many times is evidence because, right, like it says right there at the end of that verse, in verse 19, who set their mind on earthly things. And we see pastors become hirelings. They want to just go wherever the highest paid job is. We see church members become greedy. And they... Cheat and position and lie in order to become wealthy. We see professing Christians become more concerned with their position or title in the world than their position with Christ. And those are extremely sad occasions. So, why and how do we avoid this pitfall? What is the attitude of those we are to follow? I think verse 20 and 21 are going to sum this up for us. Verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're pilgrims. Right? We don't belong here. We are ambassadors for the King in a foreign land waiting on Him to come Take us home. We have to remember that. I think this is really part of the reason that we still have challenges. Once we're saved, God could make everything great for us from that point on if he wanted to. But we still have challenges. We still have suffering. We still have disappointments. We still have grief. Sometimes in extreme cases, as Christians, we have these things. And this is part of the reason we're not home yet. If you, go as a mission, if you go as an ambassador of the United States and go to a foreign land, it's not going to be as comfortable there as it is here. Well, magnify that times of whatever. It's not going to be comfortable here as it is at our true home, which is in heaven. This world is not our home. And we don't actually want to get too comfortable here. Because there's something much better coming. Our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. The perfection, back in verse 12 when he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Verse 21 is talking about the perfection that verse 12 is. This lowly body will finally be made whole. 
Let's look at Romans 7.24. says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this body of death? We all have a body of death. The answer is right here in Philippians 21. Christ Jesus will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. He will deliver me from this body of death and transform our bodies into his glorious body. And when he does, we will have attained the resurrection. We will have attained Perfection. We will no longer struggle with sin. We will no longer struggle with sickness and weakness and growing old and all of the other problems that are in our bodies now. They will be gone. We will have attained perfection by Christ. He will transform us into Him and subdue all things to Himself. The thorns will no longer grow. The lion will truly lay down with the lamb. There will be no more death. He will transform us into him. And that is the day. That is the goal that we pursue with vigor. Let's pray. Father, I, God, I pray that I could do that. That you would give me a heart to pursue you with vigor. That you would give me a heart to press on towards the calling. To press on towards the resurrection. And God, help us all to just remember and look forward to that day. Help us to remember that our citizenship is not here, but that it is in your heavenly kingdom. God, remind us of your glory. Remind us of your goodness. And the the goal of Christ that is worthy of to pursue. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You would stand as we sing.